Hello and welcome to the political party. Today's guest is Tom Blenkinsop, the former Labour MP for Middlesbrough South and East Cleveland. I chose Tom specifically for this episode because he's in the Army Reserve, he's a very patriotic man, and I thought it'd be really interesting to talk to a working class Labour person um, about uh, patriotism and monarchy and things like that. There is also a load more in this that is very, very funny about the Corbyn years. And as you'll know if you follow Tom on social media, and you absolutely should, he is fearless he is very direct and he is very, very funny. All those things come out in this interview. Before that, uh, it's a pleasure to be back. Thank you to all of you who came to see me in Edinburgh. It feels like a lifetime ago now. Um, this is the first show back, obviously. Now, the next live show is meant to be on Monday, the 19th of September, which, as you know, is the same day as the Queen's funeral. So, obviously, that's not happening. Um, and that was meant to be with Emily Maitlis and John Soper. We're postponing that, but effectively rearranging it for another date. So if you've got a ticket for that, your ticket will be valid for the new date. And as soon as I've sorted out a new date with Emily and John, uh, I will announce that on the show, but also on my social media, at Matt Ford. Uh, so if you follow me there, I'll, I'll put it on Twitter and I'll announce it. So you'll be left in no doubt um, about the future date. So apologies for that, but for obvious reasons, that show can't go ahead. Um, and my show, Clowns to the Left of Me, Jokers to the Right, which I performed throughout the Edinburgh Festival uh, and just had such a joy performing. I'm doing three last performances of it all in London on the 18th of October uh, at the Leicester Square Theatre, on the 21st of October at the Bloomsbury Theatre and at the 28th, at the 28th, on the 28th of October at the Bloomsbury Theatre. So that's uh, Leicester Square and two Bloomsbury dates on the 18th, 21st and 28th of October. You can get tickets for those shows. Um, I've put a link um, in the blurb and also uh, a link for all future political party shows there. So back in uh, to... I've never, 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 never really done these in series or seasons, um, as the Americans might have it. I've just started doing the show in... 2013 and I've just carried on doing it but it feels because I've had a holiday after Edinburgh uh, it feels like this is the closest thing to the start of a new season and Tom Blenkinsop is the ideal guest I've known Tom for many years and he's one of the funniest people I've ever met in politics and he doesn't give a shit in the right way like he is deeply passionate he's absolutely clear and he's some of the very strong values and morals as really comes through in this interview but he is fearless and he he has an energy that I think is so rare in politics. He's very, very funny. And some of the stories in this about his trade union days, about his army days, about his politics days are phenomenal. And this is all the things, if you're familiar with him, all the things that you love about him are present here. If you're not familiar with him, you are about to be introduced to a phenomenal political talent, but also someone who has a very... I guess he would see it as an honest appraisal of himself. Uh, maybe at times he's a bit hard on himself, but again, traits that are quite rare for elected politicians to have, which is to say he thinks he has a particular role and the, if he can't perform that, then he'd, he'd rather not do it. And whether that's his a, approach to being a constituency MP or his role within the party as an elected member, it's just fascinating. And of course, on top of that, his love of the armed forces, of the business community, but but of country and of identity and all those things. He articulates this in a way that I'd never really heard before. I might have heard people say similar, but I've never heard people articulate feelings towards the Queen or monarchy in quite the way that he had. Um, so he's a, a gifted communicator, even though he would probably never say that about himself, um, as you will see why. 
But enjoy. This is a, a phenomenal interview with a, a unique political talent, Tom Blenkinsop. Tom, I've been meaning to get you on for many, many years. Uh, as you can imagine, <laughs> things you and I have in common that run very, very deep. Um, but let's start with... I wanted to get you on this week because I know you're very patriotic. Um, you care a lot about the armed forces. You're part of the Army Reserve. It's a big part of your life. And we're um, talking at a time where the Army, obviously, are playing a, a very visible role in commemorating mm-hmm. the death of Elizabeth II. So um, I know you're patriotic, but what are your views on the monarchy? So, I'm, I mean, I, I had this argument with someone in the, in the pub last night. Oh, God. Like, in a positive, in a positive <laughs> oh, way, in a nice way. <laughs> Where they were saying, well, you're, you're, you're Labour and you're from the left and what are the people in the North? They think about that. And uh, I said, well, most of the people I grew up with and, and the areas I come from vary from very patriotic, very pro-Queen. If you're going to compare the Queen to any politician, the Queen is going to win, hands down, all day long, no matter what time of day you ask them. Or they think they're not necessarily either way, but they think the Queen did an excellent job and they're very, very deferential and respectful to her as a person and respect her stoicism and her discipline and also the amount of work and effort that she put in. Now, if you're talking about other members of the family after that, you might get different responses, but certainly for the Queen, I just think, if I was to describe what most people in Middlesbrough thought or Teesside, they're very, very positive about the Queen and they, and they feel it very profoundly. And I think... That's a combination of different things, not just what they think about her personally, but you know, you've got a lot of people who served in the forces, you've got a lot of people who worked in industry, one of which was, of course, ICI, and the first letter in that represents imperial chemicals. You know, the, the people feel very close attachment to her. And she, I mean, it's been said over and over again, but she was a constant in their life. She was like a, a North Star, she was always there, and not to have her there is a big thing for them, psychologically, I think, and emotionally. So this pub fight you got into last night, <laughs> who was it Who was it you were talking to then? Not someone of the left. He was someone of the left. So it was, it was a, it's, a, it's a work colleague who was like trying to work out, like, we're a bit shocked about my view on it. And I said, look, I'm not the most rampant monarchist, but I came to a, an understanding politically sort of in my mid-20s that sort of understood that people actually quite like the Queen what really like the Queen they quite like the royal family they think it's a, a USP for Britain it attracts the attention of the world it's something particular to us it's a bit like having a, a an eccentric family member that you can criticize but if anyone else attacks you feel like you've got to get up and fight for them it's that type of weird British peculiarity which makes us different. And the loyalty I say, like when you talk to guys in my unit, for example, in the armed forces, they refer to the Queen as the boss, the gaffer. And it's like an apolitical position that they see as, saw her as a personification of a national identity and a patriotism that they could, that they could embrace. Cause it's very difficult now to say that you're English or British without appearing in certain circles as, potentially chauvinistic or potentially pro-imperialistic or and it just gives people an outlet to express that deep patriotic feeling they do have when they may not have the vocabulary 
and they may not have the educational background to articulate it properly. So I respect that. And, I, and I, when I put it in balance, when I look at recent examples of where you could have an elected member of state, where we've had Bolsonaro, Trump, or even sort of more moderate politicians in the, in the EU, of, or, or Johnson, for example, you know, I take the Queen all day long over that lot. And I, and I think most British people who are sensible do as well. So you come into this sort of view in your 20s, but is that when you're also getting politicised? So you're simultaneously becoming a socialist and a monarchist at the same time? Well, I was always, I was always, I was always Labour. From, I joined the party when I was 16. Uh, I probably was more Republican then, because that's what you do when you're young, because you don't know any better. You go through those stages. But by my mid-20s and having a Blair government, but also reading up on the history of of Attlee and Bevin back in the post-45 government, you understand that, you know, the whole push for Republicans and men was seen as a sort of a, 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 diver, a, a diversionary argument, an ideological argument, which had no relation to what they were having to deal with in between 45 and 51, which was getting the country back up on its feet again after a, a terrible war, which we'd won, but we were you know, rationing the, the, the destruction levelled by post-war situation that there was far more pressing economic matters rather than trying to change who the head of state was or why or how they got there and also a, a recognition that the king had laid everything on at that time had laid everything on the line for his nation including his health and why would you then attack someone who had led the nation through that so it's just a, a historical appreciation but also just understanding more about how people who I lived alongside actually ticked rather than trying to thrust something upon them because you think it's more morally virtuous. So you use the word Labour, not socialist. Did you ever have a, a hard left phase, even if it was a fortnight? <laughs> yeah, I probably did. I mean, when I say hard left, I was, it was like anyone who was, a t- I mean, you've got to remember back in the late 90s when you had Oasis and stuff like that. <laughs> and you had Noel Gallagher slagging off the Tories and stuff like that. It was, it was part of that sort of laddish brick pop oasis and I was a teenager then and you just you get carried away with it yeah. but then once you are in government and you're more involved with the party as I did get in my early 20s you, you start understanding that you're actually running people's lives this isn't a game this isn't some sort of um, slog, slogan shouting um, teenage argument which some want to take it back to and, and try to and still try to it's about governing for people because they will leave you as fast as they supported you if they think you're just taking a piss, frankly. And were your parents political? What was it that politicised you? So my dad was uh, quite a bit older than my mum. It was just, when he married my mum, it was his second wife because his first wife died of cancer. So I have older brothers and sisters who are half-brothers and sisters. And he, my dad actually fought in the Second World War in the Royal Navy. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, so he was in the combined operations pilotage parties, which was like a commando unit that did secret landings. He was there the day before the uh, demining the beaches. Holy so, crap! So I am weird in that I have a sort of generational, I sort of missed, I have a sort of generational skip. If you like, I should have been born in the 60s or yeah. 50s rather than 1980. So the World War Two, I had it there in my living room at home. I used to get the stories off my dad when he was. And I remember the D-Day uh, commemorations in 1994. My dad was in bits the whole day because he remembered all his friends who he saw dead 
or die June from then onwards. And he, he always had his little medals, which I've, my brother has. He never collected his proper ones. The like little field medals, you'd call them mess medals. They're very small. He never, collect, he never wanted to collect the proper ones. And I've got them at home. He's got like Atlantic Stars and Defensive Europe medal and stuff like that. And I'm, I actually wrote to the, to the Royal Navy to get his, his war record and find out where he'd been and where he trained. So, yeah, it was very interesting. So that, that's, he, he actually voted Labour in 1940 for Atlee. But then afterwards became a bit uh, a, a, but then afterwards became a businessman so it's like if you're getting up getting on in the world and stuff like that, you, you've got to be a Tory type of thing that was his view so he became a Tory but he came from a very working class background in, in uh, born in Hartlepool he grew up in Wolverston his dad had fought in the first world war so my grandfather he had shell shock from the first world war James and he used to work in the, the co-op in Wolverston but he couldn't keep the he was like a deputy manager, but he couldn't keep the job. So they kept him on in the shop, but because he was so shocked by the, because he basically fought the entire First World War in, in the trenches. God. He survived the whole four years. So there is a military record there. Yeah. Um, in terms of our family and, and, um, and where they come from and what they did. And then on the other side, my mum was a, a primary school teacher and she was very Labour and a Labour Party member. So, Sunday dinner at our house was really interesting in the 80s. <laughs> so, your dad, why didn't he want to collect those other medals? He just didn't. I think it was, for some, for some blokes, it's just, uh, he never went on a parade. He never went to commemorate um, D-Day. He never went marching, as you see some veterans do. He just, he just, for some reason, he just didn't want to do it. He was really resistant to do it. I think that- he just didn't want to remember a lot of the things. He, he said it was not, you know, he was proud of what he did. And I've seen the photos of him after the war. And there's like photos of him in Germany where his team were going to get flown out to, to the Far East to fight the Japanese. And that's what they were really scared about because they heard all the horror stories about what was happening to captured soldiers over there by the Japanese. And it's him in a Luftwaffe uniform with his mates just messing around and stuff like that. Because um, they got loads of memorabilia and he brought it back, all this natty memorabilia, and his mum put it all in a fire. She wouldn't have any of it in the house. Because obviously he said, oh, this would be worth something someday. And she put it all in a fire and said, you're not having any of that stuff in my house and burned a lot. Good for her. I mean, it, it, um, it's odd that you met... My granddad was, was a prisoner of war in Japan wow. um, for many years. Um, and in a similar... Kind, I mean, it's different because it's a granddad, not a dad. Um... Which is why it's funny to imagine, in a way, when you're talking about your dad, I'm imagining if my granddad was my dad, because it's that generation. We're the same generation. So it must have been surreal to have an older dad anyway, but an older dad that had done what your dad had done. Yes. Yeah, so when, when I was born, he was 56. Uh, and then well, I have a younger brother, Joe. So he was in his 60s when he was born. So it was, you know, <laughs> growing up with that, it was um, some people used to make comments about it, and you just sort of. You just hit him. Say, say that again, I'll smack you. Whereas with my mates, we're just like, they, lo- they, they loved having our dad around because when we used to play football, he'd be on the sideline proper booming his voice out. And I just think, <laughs> what are you doing? But he just didn't care. He's a bit like me. So if he had something to say, he'd say it type of thing. And he was, he's a good character. 
So I, I totally see where you get, obviously, the, the politics from and, 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 and the new Labour in every regard, the aspirational Tory small businessman, the, um, the patriotism, obviously, the, the public service for your mum as well. But I, I never really thought about what an effect having an older father would have. I don't know whether there's anything beyond just the fact that he served in D-Day or whether there is something about having a, maybe a, a, someone of that generation that remembers Attlee but then also remembers voting Tory subsequently that it's not just about the war, there's something else. Well, you get, well talking to dad, you could, and my mum, because my mum was very political as well, and we had family links through the Labour Party through my mum's family, uh, especially in Middlesbrough, because her, her, her cousin was agent for many of the Labour candidates in Middlesbrough when it was West Middlesbrough and East Middlesbrough seats. And the politics around that time, and also that, the, the genesis of the Labour Party in Middlesbrough, which is a particularly, I mean, and this is the unique thing. If you ever listen to Ben Garbutt sing, why Teesside's strange in a way is that um, the Labour Party in Middlesbrough, at least, was very Catholic and very Irish Catholic. So going way back when, uh, you know, early 20th century, late 19th century, um, the Irish vote there, if to get the vote out to vote Labour, was very pro Republic. And that's the same in the Durham Coalfield, that you, you had Irish Parliamentary Party candidates turning up to the Miners Gala as much as Labour Party candidates. And the Labour Party wore green, not red, in the Durham Coalfield on the Rosettes because of the Irish contingent in the vote. So you have this weird heady mix where you've got second or third generation Irish kids who then go off to serve in Northern Ireland oh with the British Army in the 60s when we were in 1969. You get songs by, which is a great song, and I, I suggest everyone listen to it by Vin Garbert, who's a, called the Teesside Troubadour, um, a song called Howard Green, which is a play on that because there was the Green Howards. So it's a story about this Howard Green who's from Teesside who goes to serve in Northern Ireland and gets killed. and tells a story about how he, he's... It's a, I mean, Vin was very pro-Republican himself. His parents were, were Irish, and his music is very very irish in the sort of the the sound and the and the and the the, 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 the if you listen to it it's, it's clear but the, the story is very interesting in terms of that weird irish diaspora in teesside now it interplays with the sort of obvious deeply patriotic connections about being culturally irish but also english and british and we'll come on to your time as a labor and being a bit obviously the armed forces bit it's fascinating so you're now in the army reserve which is effectively a, a volunteer Army. Yeah. I, I don't know a great deal about it, but I think that's what the it old is. and bold. Yeah. <laughs> do you think do you think you would have been drawn to the armed forces without your dad and his experience? I don't know. I mean, see, my brother's in it. He's a reservist, but he's an officer. So he, he laughed when he he went in the navy. So he laughs that I have to salute him now, which he's never going to get out of me. I don't care what he does. <laughs> he can threaten anything. I'm never saluting him. But um, I think it probably is. Um, but our area has a massive, you know, it was, it, I used to say when I was an MP that the army, the armed forces were like the last, last nationalised industry. It was the one area that you knew if, if, if you had to, you could fall back on that if you kept, if you were fit enough or if you were able enough to do certain jobs. And, and the lads who join aren't daft. They'll try and do craft related jobs within the forces so they can come out with the skills. Because if you're in engineering in the RAF or the Navy, you're going to come out with some great skills in, in Civvy Street. But a lot obviously go into infantry. Um, and it's about to provide, I think there's a campaign there to sort of provide further 
post-army career support for guys who go into infantry because essentially your job is, is to kill. And you need to build around that more skills so when they do come out, and they will come out at some point, that they've got something to draw upon in civvy street. But I think they're in, a, in many ways in a, a much better situation than a lot of the young people now who are now ending up in retail or other low-skilled employment, whether they may have skills or not, but just aren't utilised by the local economy. And I, and I think it's a combination, yes, definitely on my dad's record and family record, but also the local area. But also when I was an MP, we had the Armed Forces Parliamentary Scheme, which I was a member, which I joined. Yeah. And you get When we joined, you got originally you were sent a little rank slide with a portcullis on it instead of a instead of the crown, which which majors had, and you were an honorary major. So you were turning up events and squaddies were saluting you. And these guys are coming back from Afghan and Iraq and stuff like that. And it's like, and I just felt like going, right, Walter. This, you just, I just felt <laughs> bad about it. And um, I really did feel bad, bad about it. And I thought, and I didn't think anything more about it. And then, and then I went to some event in Hemlington, which is in my constituency, where there was an army reserve guy there. And he said, oh, yeah, why don't you join? So well, can I join? He said, yeah. And it just blossomed from there. I ended up going to the Armed Forces Recruitment Centre in Middlesbrough. And the guy looked at me, knowing exactly who I was, going, what are you doing here? And I was just like, well, I've come to join, haven't I? And he just started chuckling. He went, all right, then, and sat me down. He said, how old are you? And I said, well, I'm 30, oh, I think it's 35 at the time. He said, well, you, we're not going to put you in the infantry. You'll kill you. And you'll have to, but I, I did all the training and I passed all the basic fitness stuff. And I was doing preparatory, preparatory training for CP with the RMP when all the problems with my back started, because I, I, I was doing a 56 miler and I got about 20 odd mile in and I couldn't feel my left leg. So. Oh my God. Yeah. Would you have joined the infantry? If you were able to? I'm glad I didn't. If I was at that time, I would have, but I'm, for me, I'm glad I didn't because it's, there's a reason why they want people between the age of 19 to 25, particularly for the officer courses, because you've got, you've got to be physically robust. It's hard work. So, you know, if you're doing tabs all the time, which is usually like an eight-mile march with weight, um, and RFTs now, slightly changed. So you can't remember what it is now, but I think it's like you carry 25 kilogram over two miles and then between 40 and 50 over a mile. And then you do other exercises as well. Um, so yeah, it's a lot of graft. It's a lot of at pace A to B with weight, um, and and then obviously you've got more elite regiments like the guards who we've seen recently, and who do a lot of they're not just ceremonial; they do a lot of hard uh, physical green stuff. And then the parachute regiment, and obviously the Royal Marines who have their own separate course, um, so the all arms course. So that's you know they're speed marches where you're running nine mile, nine mile, uh, nine minute miles for nine miles with 15 kilograms. I mean, it just sounds appalling. Uh, uh, wonder, <laughs> you wonder what on earth attracts any sane being to do it. But you, you joined this while you were an MP, but obviously an opposition MP. In fact, the whole time, obviously Labour is still in opposition, but the whole time yep. you were an MP, those seven years Labour in opposition. Do you think if Labour had been in government, you'd have still joined? I don't know. It's a good question. Uh, I probably, I probably wouldn't have had the time because one of the one another like factor that pushed me towards it is post twenty fifteen. Corbyn gets in. I wasn't in the whips office anymore. You feel a bit like a spare part, really, because we weren't wanted. They were actively trying to get rid of us. So I thought, how can I keep myself useful? 
and, and in many ways, how can I perform service? Uh, and that's another probably another big reason when I think about it, why I did it as well, to keep myself relevant, useful, and, and trying to channel my energy in a positive way um, because it was quite clear for me anyway on, on the day he was made leader that that was basically my redundancy notice it was goodbye <laughs> see you later <laughs> I remember bumping into you various times through the Corbyn years and you um you were blessed really with a, a very uh, direct appraisal of what's going on and you seemed obviously not happy with the direction of the party but very clear about it and mm-hmm. not you know, completely uncompromising with these people and, and what it meant. Um, and obviously some people found that period hell in many other ways. And many people suffered appalling abuse and bullying. But And obviously you suffered online abuse um, at, at the hands of people. But I, I, is, it, is it too simplistic to say actually none of that ever really got to you or did it? It's to a certain level. I mean, what people didn't realise is before that, I had death threats before Corbyn ever came in and, and there was a quite a big case where someone had actually sent a picture of the bullet they were going to put in my head. This is a guy from the far right. So in that sort of, and I couldn't mention it because it all went to court. Because when the, one of the, I mean, weirdly, one of the guys who raided his house, is, I actually knew him and he told me afterwards that when they raided his house, they found all sorts of stuff in his house, weapons, but also like a, what he called a metric ton of child porn as well. This guy was going to go down for a long, long oh time. Oh my God. And uh, before it went to trial, he committed suicide. Oh my so, God. So that was, that had happened, yeah. but I never, I never published it or went public about it because for me it's like, well, get on with the job. Yeah. Um, and then when the whole carbonism stuff came out, I was, I remember, and I kept the copy of it on the 18th of August 2015. I said very clearly that um, he and people like who support Corbyn support the candidate, not the party. These are the same people who campaigned against the Labour Party in many elections prior. And now sitting in my GC telling me what the Labour Party is. Um, and they're going to keep Labour out of power. I mean, what was it? I said uh, Labour have been in power for 26 years and it's 100 and odd year history and they're intent on keeping us out of power until at least 2025. Well, I think I've got it pretty much spot on, basically. I mean, <laughs> Christmas Christmas 24, not too far off. But I, I, I made it absolutely clear that I would not... Um, I would not... Um, any way, shape, or form, um, ever assist, help, or or provide them with any support whatsoever. Because as far as I was concerned, he and they were entryists and not Labour. They had hijacked the party, and they were taking it and careering it off in a way which just enabled even more years of conservatism to to dominate. And uh, and I stuck by that and I made it very clear. And I said to myself, my local constituency party, I'm a staff. If we get into a general election situation, I am not standing as the candidate. You're going to, you can try and deselect me if you want, but I, crack on, but I will not stand as a candidate. Uh, and, I, and, I, and as soon as the snap election was announced, I stood down because I, I just was not prepared to, to tolerate him. And did I you vote Labour in that election? I voted Labour because yeah. I never left the Labour Party throughout it all. Nor did I take a, a pay ridge in the Lord's, you know. <laughs> Were you ever offered one? Nah, I'm not important enough. I'm not shiny enough. <laughs> I've never been shiny. <laughs> During that period, obviously, there were all sorts of appalling things went on. Did anyone ever try and 
intimidate you face to face? Were there ever? Did you ever any ever have any confrontations with anyone in Parliament or outside? Oh yeah. Um, and and that was another reason why I should I needed to go is because it was going to end up in because it was just ridiculous. It was just every PLP would end up in arguments where seventy five percent of the rooms against the leadership. I was elected to the parliamentary committee, which met on a Wednesday at two o'clock after PMQs to meet with Corbyn. And the first question I or someone always asked is, when are you resigning? You know, what would he say? we don't want you, get out. Uh, and he, well, he, he just, oh, you can't say that to him. I said, well, just have, answer the question. And then, and then he just didn't turn up at all. Because he used to, apparently he used to dread those meetings, which I thought was good. So he could get a good, a good sense of where the parliamentary party was. Because we, we, we represent the country we can listen to what people are telling us what the electorate are telling us but he just didn't want to know he was and the people around him like, bloody hell um just not fit a, you know couldn't just awful like not because they're ideologically crackers they just couldn't run a bath they're just useless um it was it was ridiculous and people knew it and it wasn't like we're hiding anything or making anything up it was abundantly obvious 27 you get a 2017 people give them the benefit of the doubt but by 2019 they'd worked it out and they had enough i mean you think of those, those two general elections the worst offers the british people have ever been given theresa may or corbyn johnson or corbyn i mean it's hopeless scandalous really um but we're in a better place now so Online, you're very um, active on social media. And I've, I love your Twitter account, and you're always very. Um, you sort of kept fighting the fight online. I, I guess is the is the is the uh, is the way to put it. Is that you are still very robust with people from that wing of the party on social media? Yeah, because I think, irrespective of whether it was two years ago or now that we got a new leadership, or it'll be ten years or twenty years. You have to have vigilance against these people because they'll cut, try and come back. I mean, I, I, I compared the hard left to Stephen King's It, <laughs> where where the, where the clown comes back every 30 years or so, yeah. tricks all the kids into liking him, and then eats them all. I mean, that's basically the hard left. It, it, it devours its own revolution yeah. and then leaves nothing behind, and then everyone forgets about the clown, and then he comes back again. <laughs> I mean, it's, you'd make it so funny on social media as well, which is great because I think some people find it an intimidating arena and they, in the end, I don't know, they retreat. I don't know whether it is an army mindset that gives you that stamina to keep <laughs> fighting the fight. It's it's more, I'd say it's more my trade union background. So dealing with, I'm going into meetings where like last minute, you'd be an officer and you've got to go in and you've got to deliver some bad news or you've got, you see, you're negotiating a pay deal. Like whether it was a, a Redka Steel Works, whether it was on the Concast or the Blast Furnace or down in Northamptonshire when I used to be National Officer for Boot and Shoe. So anyone wearing looks or churches out there, I used to negotiate the pay for those people who work, make those beautiful shoes which sell for like 500 quid a pair. Those people... For me, I wanted to make sure that we got them a decent pay rise because they, they, they were manufacturing some of the most, you know, iconic British items out there, but weren't getting a decent pay deal. And, and but sometimes you'd have to deliver bad news. And um, being that one person at the front of a canteen with 
200 people sort of glaring at you gives you a certain ability and robustness to be able to take. Because I, I, I remember stories as a union officer, one from South Wales, where there was a union officer who went in and told them that like, they couldn't get the pay deal on. This is about 10 or 15, maybe 20 years ago. And they all went, oh, yeah, yeah, no problem. Do you want a pint? So he goes in. He goes, oh, you take this all very well, lad. And while he's having a couple of beers with the lads in the, in the bar, they've all gone out the back and walked over his car. So when he comes out, it's this perfect indentation down the middle of his car where they've all in their rigger boots walked over it and knocked hell out of his car and then said, see you later. Have a nice drive home. I mean, that's the type of, that's the type of thing that you learn or heard about before you went into meetings thinking, oh, bloody hell, I better, do, I better be able to deliver this for those. They're going to kick hell out of my car. And it's that type of, you know, how industrial issues... I've been in meetings on pay disputes where a manager and an officer have literally gone outside and had a fight and whoever won it came back in. That, that resolved the discussion. How long ago was that? That was... Late 2000s. So I was a regional officer before... <laughs> 2010 and that was regular like things that get sorted out there and then and in a way it was good because it meant <laughs> you didn't have to bring hr in <laughs> like a proper punch up yeah and that would determine who got paid what it would determine the result of the outcome whether it was like um whether it was a an internal dispute or whether it was a grievance or something like that and then everyone would shake hands and yeah really insensitive stay physically fit and train well, I would physically fit. They were just big lads. But you've got to remember, a lot of the management came from the shop floor as well. Yeah. I mean, in particular, if they had, like, qualifications that the union paid for, like health and safety qualifications, the management would snap them up. So they knew us as much as we knew them. And there was a bit, and they might be in a union branch themselves, but in our union, but in a separate branch. And sometimes I've been in disputes where, the same union is in dispute with itself and you've had to send officers down to represent one section against another and it'd be a hammer and tongue. So it, was, it, it prepares you for situations which are far more intimidating than some of the, you know, bands that try to give you grief on Twitter. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So as well as doing all these other things, you also now um, provide your public affairs advisor for the Federation of Small Businesses, which, again, thinking of your dad and his influence, you know, you spend some of your time with the army and some on business. I mean, this is like, 
This is almost like you're living your dad's legacy. <laughs> well, I mean, in terms of, yeah, it's they're, they're important. Um, without them, you know, what was it? 99% of Brit- Britain's businesses and SMEs got less than 250 employees, 60% of the economy um, is, is small businesses, of, I think, with less than five employees. It's, it's massive, massively significant, particularly now. Um, and, and after 2008, where you had the economic recession then and the bank in the national banking crisis, it was small businesses that re-employed people and grew the economy as much as they could uh, the last time around. So it's a, ma- it's a massive issue. And there are more people who are self-employed now. I, I think about the guys who used to work at Red Steelworks who all got the 10 grand off the government to sort of help them set up a business. Um, a lot of them not earning the same amount of money they did when in the steelworks, but without that, they'd really, without support, they'd really struggle. And business support is going to be really, really vital, uh, as it always is, but even more so now. So, yeah, it's it's another it's another legacy issue that I've, I've sort of decided to sort of pick up on. And in many ways, it's very similar to the trade union movement. They're, they're self-employed and small business people who are, who are in a very different, situation compared to their larger business cousins much more reliant upon whether people get a decent pay, pay rise so they can have maintain their custom very diverse crosses different sectors spread out across the uk doing lots of different things um and having helped over the covid period lobbying government and opposition over that and now with a with a very difficult likely deep long recession coming um i'm quite privileged to sort of help out there as much as i can really in the corbyn years had a labor mp been associating with the fsb people might have thought it was something very different yeah, well indeed um and what what the left assumes is that there isn't a, a historical labor connection there because uh, a former chair john wright used to be a constituency labor party of mine in um, in Middlesbrough South, he was the national chair of the FSB way back. Um, I think that when I was an MP, and before that, he was um, he was in UP. So he remembers the whole UP Nelgo uh, merger when it became Unison. He was immersed in the trade union movement, became a businessman, and then blossomed within the FSB. So that you know, trying to limit people or box them into, oh, you're a Labour person, so you must be this, or you're a Tory person, you must be that. It's it's utterly redundant i'm afraid i was making a lame joke about the um kgb i, <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to do a russia joke but um, I know a russia joke. it was crap sadly so thinking of labor now then w- would you stand for parliament again i'd never say no i mean if i did it would have to be some from where i'm from i wouldn't just I mean, for the I, I, I'm not knocking. Why not? Why, why wouldn't you stand somewhere else? Uh, I don't think I'd. I just don't feel it. I, I don't. And for some people, it, it doesn't matter. And for some people, it shouldn't matter. If you've got, if you're really able or a potential leader, you should stand and get somewhere. Uh, and I'm not knocking people for. I don't think you have to be from the area to represent it. Well, I mean, there's great examples locally that I can think of, like Ashok Kumar, my predecessor, and more Morlam, Peter Mandelson. Great examples, Tony Blair. Um, but I, I just think for me, 
I like the fact that I could represent somewhere where my mum lives, where my mates live, that I can go to the Borough Match still, that I can drink in my local, that I can meet people who I went to school with. I like that. I like, I like that um, personal relations that I've built. I, I loved it as an MP that I could go to my old primary school and sit there as the MP when I used to sit there when I was four years old as a, as a kid, you know. I, that for me is the connection. It's, it's a driving force of it, which makes it much more, just much more potent, more sort of life-affirming to do that, I think, for me. I mean, I, I know some people feel like that, but obviously you're putting yourself at the service of the country, aren't you, as a, as a member of parliament to, to, to hopefully one day form a government who will then benefit all parts of the UK. I mean, if if Keir said to you, look, we can't get you a seat locally, but, you know, there's a, there's a lovely seat in East Anglia or, or in the southeast of England. I mean, would, would that be, or would you prefer somewhere nearer? What if they said, oh, you've got one in the northwest or the East Midlands or, or Scotland? I don't know. I'd, I'd have to look at it. I'd have to. I'd definitely look at it, but I think I'd just keep coming back to the same answer. I'd, I'd, I mean, I, I think about. I mean, Greg Clark is obviously a Tory MP. Uh, recently, was in the cabinet briefly and back out again. Business secretary used to deal with him over steel issue. He comes from Normanby down the road from me, which is actually in the Red constituency, but it's, it's Middlesbrough really. And I always used to joke with him, saying like when you were growing up, when you when you went to Cambridge and you did really well at school and all that type of stuff, you thought you wanted to be a parliamentarian. Did you really think, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to be a parliamentarian and I'm going to go and represent Tunbridge Wells? <laughs> you know what I mean? What's the point? And what did Tunbridge say Wells has got everything. Well, he just went, oh, well, you can say, he knew what I was saying, but I was just like, what's the point of representing an area that clearly everyone in it... Pr- pretty much can represent themselves pretty well already <laughs> you know it's like i just don't get it i i, I am biased towards northeast i am very biased towards teesside i am a teesside patriot so for me that extra push means i can push for, for Middlesbrough, but ultimately so i can go to the match on a, on a saturday and um yeah i, I just it's just it's more it's more for me it was it was it was a one of the driving forces to do it and, and and i was very lucky i wasn't supposed to be there i was never a planned candidate i was only there because ashok died in uh, march 2010 and we were on the cusp of the general election and it could have very well been a by-election but at the time it was so close that it got rolled into the rest of the general election i was never an nec approved candidate um i went in on a long list of over 200 people my short list selection included andy mcdonald who's the mp for middlesbrough now and also uh, Matthew Saeed, who recently moaned about the process. So you know, um, yeah, it was it was it was a unique experience, and it was it was good fun. So actually, were it not for that, do you think you might never have stood, or would you always I, have stood at some point? I don't think I would have. Whatever. I don't think it would have happened. I just don't think it would have happened. It was just the circumstances were what they were. I stood in at the last minute, and, and that election was nuts because Redcoat, <laughs> if you remember, I mean, the steelworks issues was going off then. We knew in the background, because I was a union officer there, that we, would, we had a deal on, in the offing, but we couldn't do it in that period. And Vera was very disciplined, didn't discuss any of the commercially confidential information, which she could have and saved herself, which she didn't. And she doesn't get enough credit for that. 
And she lost that seat uh, by a massive 25,000 vote swing to the Liberal Democrats. My seat, as, as you will recall, was the most marginal for Labour in the North East. It had never been Labour prior to 1997. Well, briefly under Ashok when he won it in the by-election in 91 when it was Langbar. He lost in the general in 92, and it, that was, like, for him, a, a real psychological scar why he campaigned so hard afterwards and he inculcated that culture in, the, in our local party. And I was his agent for a lot of that time. But we lost... Uh, Redco, we lost Stockton South and, they, and Stockton South and Mills were South were always the bellwether seats about whoever owned them formed a government and I, well, one of my proudest achievements was to hold that seat as a brand new candidate when we lost Darry lost in Stockton and, and Vera lost in Redco and we clung on held that little bit of the Maginot Line wall the blue sea coming from North Yorkshire over the, over the hills to come and take us and we held them back but as you saw in 2019 when that was completely destroyed it didn't just go through Teesside, it went through Durham and all the way up to Blythe and Northumberland. And think of the next election, if it is 2024, how do you think Labour will do and how do you think they'll do in the North East? I think they'll do a lot better. Um, I think people are very angry. Um, I think County Durham in the main and most of the seats will come back to Labour. I think Blythe will. Um, Teesside... I think Hartlepool will go back to Labour. And bear in mind, there's boundary changes come June next year, which make it harder for a lot of the seats we need to gain, particularly in the side conurbation. So, but I still think Hartlepool will come back. I think Redcar will go Labour, definitely, because the back, Labour wards in my former constituency go into Redcar and Mask um, goes into Middlesbrough, South and East Cleveland, which actually makes Middlesbrough, South and East Cleveland probably more difficult to win back but not impossible and Darlington gains more of the rurality outside it which is much more Tory leaning so it's it's a bit more tricky so um, um, we're in a situation that's okay no problem I'm just on a, I'm just on a call at the moment yeah yeah it's fine thanks anyway no so how, housekeeping housekeeping <laughs> um have you spoken so, to yeah, this kid since he became leader? Uh, yeah, but mainly um, in an official capacity in, my, in, in the job that I do now, but not, not in a sort of um, political way. Although I've, I've talked to Rachel and other colleagues, uh, and Bridget Phillipson and, and West Street, and, and also good friends that I know from the from Whip's office days as well. I keep in touch with them. I mean, uh, myself, Phil Wilson and Graham Jones, Get, meet up now and again for a beer just to sort of slag off whoever we want to slag off on that beer and, <laughs> and uh, occasionally go to the races just to sort of chew the fat about things because Graham's wanting to get back in. Phil's, yeah. um, he's he's just said, I'm, I'm retired now, but he still helps out with the party locally in Sedgefield. So, but yeah, it's good to catch up with them and just talk about what we think is going to happen and what we think needs to happen. And as if we know anything, of course, but it's just good fun to sort of. Just good fun to sort of relive old days. And, um, um, what do you think needs to happen? I mean, I constantly remind myself of the fact that what Kia has achieved since becoming leader compared to, and the comparator I use is someone like Kinnock, is massive. For, for, he's, ex, he's taken what Kinnock had to do from 83 through 92. He's done in two and a bit years. Now, 
we can put our hands up and say, yes, there's a lot more to do and there's still some nutters about and God almighty, you know, there's some idiots in the NEC still that need to be taken out and chucked out. But he has done a hell of a lot of work uh, and that is, was on his shoulders initially, all on his shoulders and people are out to get him when we had the Hartlepool by-election and we got beat there. But I always knew that at some point the economic gravity of the situation was always going to catch up from the Tories and that would then allow him to, to build the catalyst for the argument and then develop his skills and show uh, where he can be. We're in a lot better position talking about the private sector and a lot better. We've, we've brought through the actual talent of the party and ignored the nutters, which is always a good step. Um, and they need to be segregated and isolated because, frankly, they've got nothing to bring to the table apart from defeat. Uh, and it's that it's been that ruthless and that hard about it, because that's what you got to do in leadership. And he's exhibiting some of the lessons that that Blair um, taught the party again, and we're having to relearn them again. Uh, are we quite there yet? No, but we're in a much much better place than we were. And I look at the new generation. A lot of them who came in with me in 2010, like Bridget, Wes, uh, uh, Peter, Kyle, and some friends who left and are coming back again, like Heidi, Alexander, and I, it fills me with confidence about the trajectory of the party and where it needs to be. On the same note, I also look at some of the nutters um, and, and I'm acutely aware that they have to be dealt with. Now, you negotiate with them first, you say you either get on board and shut up or even participate. If you don't, there's the door. You know, you've got to be absolutely ruthless about it because this isn't mucking about anymore. We've had 12 years out of power. Last time was 18 years. You can't piss about. You can't just turn up and pick up your 80 grand and your pension and look off the number one, which is essentially what they do. I mean, that's what Corbyn did. Four decades of doing absolutely sweet FA and becoming a millionaire. Absolute parasite of a man. So, you know, you need to get on with it. And people like me are quite prepared to put the graft in at a constituency level to take those people on. And there are still elements within constituency parties that need to be taken off. So, when yeah, we're talk, getting there. When you talk about your friends like Peter Khan and West Streeting and Heidi Alexander and you're seeing them either now rise through the ranks, become more prominent, um, or, or return to Parliament or seek to return, does that not make you want to get back in there? Do you not go, well, I was part of a cohort that's now going places that could shape the country and, and I'm not in Parliament? Yes and no. I mean... You just got to be a bit stoical about this and not be a whining baby. <laughs> I mean, like, no, no one put me in that situation where I had to resign. That was my choice. I could have stood, probably won in 2017, then stood again in 2019, got smashed, <laughs> got a big redundancy payout. So what? I would have lost my credibility. All those years of taking a position against Corbyn is much more valuable to me because I can say now, I was right, because I was, and there's nothing they can do about it. They're good. They're the I always look at the Labour Party in terms of when we had David Miliband and Ed Balls, they were the type of people you had to protect, and it didn't matter where they stood, they needed to be in the party to lead. I'm not one of those people. Why not? I'm one, no, I'm one of the lads in the whip's office who gets the ball over the line for them. I'm not, I'm not, I know my limitations. I know what my skill sets are. I'm humble enough to admit it. Like, for example, in the, the, the Army Reserve, I went to be an officer because there was an assumption like, oh, you used to be an MP, you, or you are an MP, you need to be an officer. 
I'll go along. I'll go to Westbury and I'm doing all the things. And bearing in mind, they, they give you a colour and a number, which indicates your age. So I'm red leader, number one, I'm at the front of the queue. <laughs> and I turn around the guy next to me going, just out of like just out of interest how old are you he goes oh, I'm, I'm, I'm 26 mate and I'm like 36 at this time so I'm 10 years older than the nearest person to me I'm thinking, but you have to do an assault course and you do a bleep test and you're doing like quick mathematical questions where you got like five seconds on the computer and, and a thing called planet it's hard and I did no preparation for it properly and I got a very low grade and they asked me to invite me back but even I knew that I was only doing it because of the expectations of what they put upon me and maybe I wasn't the right person for it but at the time, I was angry with myself for not doing it properly because if I want to do something, I want to do it properly. But also at the same time, it was a good thing because it reminded me that I liked being one of the lads and in the ranks. So in much the same way with the party, there are better people with the skill set and backgrounds and ability, far better than me, to do the leadership roles. I'm good at persuading. I'm good at outriding. And I'm good at dealing with people who need to be dealt with. And they're my skills and I know what I am. And I don't try to be anything else. And I'm very honest and upfront about it. You know, what you might not like what I say, but you know what I'm saying to you is exactly what you're going to get. So that fits a, a job role and it helps the party in its own way. You don't need to be anything more than that. It's about understanding how you fit into the bigger picture people will find that admirable and, and they may call to mind politicians like Alan Johnson who said similar things about themselves but is there not a danger that you straightjacket yourself that you unnecessarily limit yourself against people from different particularly class backgrounds who don't realize their own limitations and still go for it anyway and some of them end up becoming prime minister who are less qualified than you possibly but you are employed by your constituents and the taxpayer for your judgment and I use my judgment. Brexit, I use my judgment. I told people in one of the most, you know, my constituency voted Brexit on like 70-30, possibly more. And I told them they're wrong. It's not going to end well. It's not me who's going to get hurt. If I lose my job, I'm going to get 35 grand redundancy. If you lose yours, you're knackered. I'm telling you this, not because I'm telling you as a paid advisor, you're paying me to tell you the truth. Uh Likewise, on the doorstep, whether it was an election, so you're paid for your judgment. You have to apply your judgment. I did the same with Corbyn. I knew he was totally unsuitable. That's and, and to do otherwise would be deceitful. It would just be looking after me. I could have chose the I could have chose the easy life, like a lot of well, a few colleagues did, and just keep your head down and nod and put your tin hat on and hope it all goes away and ride it out. But that's not me, and I think that's a disservice to the people who are paying you. We're talking um, on the Thursday, the 15th of September 2022, uh, and you're in London, and on Monday it will be the Queen's funeral in London. So by the time most people listen to this, um, that will still be to come. Um, as someone who's a, a patriot, who's in London, who uh, is a member of the armed forces, are you tempted to go and watch any of it? I mean, how do you feel about all, all the sort of the, the scale of the ceremony of it all? I think it's... You, people are not going to see anything of this magnitude for many years to come. I, I think it's unique. I think of the death of Diana, I thought that was unique. Uh, obviously, the Queen Mother dying, but I think this is so profoundly unique. You know, as we sit, as I sit here, there's people queuing back 
I think five miles now down down the road to attend uh, Westminster Hall to 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 pay their respects to the, the Queen Line and stay. Um, I just think it's so huge psychologically, emotionally. Um, and just she was so omnipresent in a in a benign, kind way, like. Like people often say, refer to as like the the sort of the the, the nation's grandmother type of role, and, they, and these are all sort of I'm just sort of regurgitating what other people have said. But it is so it is huge. Even if you're a Republican, you can't deny how big an event this is, and the amount of people and where they're coming from to pay their respects as well. Uh, I think it is not just about monarchy versus republicanism. I think it's something exceptionally particular and. Um, different because it's about her as well i think she is probably the, the nation's greatest monarch and that might be because i'm saying that because she was the only one i've known and lived with but i think she is i genuinely think she is because she 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 created a transition from empire to commonwealth a relinquishing of that bad history if you like to try and create and define a new identity for britain allowing people to be patriotic but not chauvinistic or imperialistic about it and helping people express that emotionally where you've got people who are proud to be english or british but might not have the educational background and might not have the vocabulary to explain that she personified something for them that they could hold on to which was uniquely theirs and i think internationally you put the queen against any president Present, present or past, she would win, hands down. And are you tempted to either queue up to look at the coffin line this day, or to be somewhere on Monday and and, and get a view of it? Oh, I mean, I, I'll be back in Middlesbrough back tomorrow. Um, I was hoping to try and um, get to Westminster Hall. I think I'll try and get as close as I can, but I'm not very good on my legs at the moment. I've got back injury. Sort of arthritis in the spine, oh, so it, man. It, limit, it limits the ability for me to walk or stand for long periods. You're a veteran, can't you? Just like pushing at the front of the queue <laughs> or something. <laughs> Doesn't work that way. It'll be all oh, there's Tom Blanks up using his parliamentary pass <laughs> to get in. Yeah, typical. Um, <laughs> but I'll try. I'll definitely watch the ceremony. I watched a lot of it yesterday as well, and I just you know the guards, you know both infantry and cavalry. The fantastic job as they always do is um, very you know, just we do it, we do do it as a nation far better than any other nation. And I know I'm biased, but it is true. And people tune in to watch it, I don't care what anyone says, they are impressed by watching how the, the British Army performs in those, those roles. And there are, um, I think Ben Wallace today is mm-hmm. one of the people on, on effectively on watch or whatever the phrase is, as a member of the archers, is uh guarding the coffin for at least one shift yeah they're an honorary regiment for i think based up in scotland i think it was scottish yeah scottish i think it was like the queen the king's bodyguard as well he's in which is his honorary but obviously yeah he had a background in the scots guards he was obviously a spook as well so but yeah he was, he was an officer in the scots guards and they would have been present yesterday and today in in, 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 in their role as ceremony a ceremonial role as well so he's got a He's got experience of dealing with ceremonial marching. I couldn't 
you know, I'm I'm wrong military police. We don't do much. We sit in cars and drink coffee and eat donuts. <laughs> well, do that, but in a in a patriotic <laughs> way. So if you see Tom Blenkinsop in the northeast of England on Monday in a car eating donuts, he's doing it in service to his country. It's all he knows. We don't do. I mean, we just don't do the ceremonial stuff. We're, we're much more. We do, it's quite. A, I mean, ours is a bit more varied. We do the, the sort of general police and stuff like that. But we have the CP wing, so we've got R and P guys in Kiev at the moment who are guarding ambassadors in uh, Ukraine because we were the first to reopen our embassy there. The R and P guys are the ones doing the, the close protection stuff for ambassadors, ambassadorial oh stuff out there. That's a whole other episode, Tom. This has been an absolute privilege. No bother. Thank you so much. Well, there you go, Tom Blenkinsop. What a special individual. Uh, what a unique talent and, and what a great way of articulating his uh, thoughts and feelings um, in just such a funny manner. Uh, what a joy. It's great to be back. And yes, you can get tickets for all future political party shows at mattford.com slash live. And my next, and arguably, well, there's no argument about it. The last three performances of Clowns to the Left of Me, Jokers to the Right are all in London on the 18th of October at the Leicester Square Theatre, on the 21st of October at Bloomsbury, and on the 28th of October at Bloomsbury as well. Obviously, when I first started, in fact, when I last performed this show, Boris Johnson was Prime Minister and uh, Elizabeth II was the Queen of England. So now I have a new Prime Minister and a, and a new King. Um, so the show is going to change yet again. Um, so come and watch me struggle with the eternal challenge of permanently rewriting any comedy show that I uh, ever perform. Um, I'll be back next week and I will see you soon. Ta-ra. Ta-ra.